Hey, welcome to night school. Non-mobile, non-mobile, mixer and a microphone this time. Got it all set up. And, uh, you know, what I'm seeing right now that I, I've been wanting to comment on is the if you're not for us, you're against us idea that has gotten so sharply defined recently. And that's an idea that we do see it play out, especially in our personal lives, where if we have a friend who is upset about somebody, or especially a significant other, if they're upset about somebody at work, and you say to, and you and you see the other side, you have to be very careful with that with people who are your family members, your loved ones, your uh, your husband or your wife. Um, and, uh, if, if they come home and they're complaining about somebody at work and they were in a conflict and you can see the, the person, the other person's side, you might, you might completely support your loved one, but you do see where the other side was coming from. You have to be very difficult, uh, or it's very difficult to express that without your loved one feeling like you betrayed them. Jerry at work keeps, uh, he's just out to get me. Jerry, you you would believe what Jerry at work did today. And it's like, oh, well, maybe you shouldn't have uh, spilled your coffee on his keyboard. I can kind of understand. I don't know, whatever it is. Uh, but if you see the other side at all, if you basically acknowledge the other side's humanity in some cases... That can cause a rift between you and that person because they feel like you're taking that other person's side. Being objective can often <clears throat> come across like you are betraying that person who you have this very subjective relationship with. And but you know, and we do see it play out too socially. I think a lot of people who are particularly, I mean, devoted to a certain religion political ideology, people who are dogmatic. I like that phrase, people who are particularly dogmatic. They have a tendency to live their lives with this sort of mindset. If you're not for us, you're against us. They kind of operate, they go through life with a line drawn in the sand, and they continually redraw it. They're constantly redrawing that line, because they move around, they move around, and their opinions change, their their life changes, so they do have to continually redraw this line, but they don't know, they don't know what they would do otherwise, because their life is based around these strict definitions, you either agree with me, or you don't, and if you don't explicitly agree with everything they say, with their entire checklist, Oh well, guess what? You know you're you're enemies now. You're against us, and you're just sitting there thinking like, "Oh, I don't remember being against you. I actually like you. I don't I don't like everything you say, but you know I actually do like you. And I thought this is just the exchange of information. But sometimes this plays out, you know, very on a very large scale and very intensely, and that's what's going on right now. And it's not that this doesn't go on with our existing political groups. Obviously, it does. 
I mean, if you say one thing, I mean, I've had this experience myself. You know, I have a lot of friends who are on the far left. And when I made those friendships and, you know, for, for that matter, I have family members. You know, I, I have a lot of people. I'm primarily surrounded by people who are at least left of center. But I feel like left of center has gotten even further left, which is funny because they'll say that right of center has gotten even further right. So you can see where everybody sees, everybody sees, you know, the most extreme version of the person who doesn't agree with them, which is exactly what I'm talking about. If you say, oh, you know, I'm not sure about that, they think, oh, you're completely on the other side of that line. And so we we go around like that normally, and I don't know, I'm, I'm not going to include myself in this, because I make a sincere effort not to do this, and I might fall into it now and again, but I do make a sincere effort. So when I say we, I don't mean me, but I'll say we anyway. So when we do this as humans, as we do this, you know, because I am part of that group, I am part of that human group, even though I'm becoming more and more, uh, you know, that... You know, I'm, I'm going to, my virginity is going to come back. I'm losing my hair. So I'm going to look more and more like that alien virgin monk that I always talk about who will be listening to my show in 300 years. I'm, I'm just becoming that. That's why it's going to, the show's going to appeal so much to alien virgin monks because I'm going to become that. And they're going to identify with me. And if you're not with the virgin alien monks, you're against us. If you have hair, I still have hair, but uh, I'm not a virgin either. It's gonna, it's gonna come back though. Um, but uh, anyway, Jesus, I was, I was talking about something important. I'm talking about important things here, and. Uh, but it, it, I think everybody understands that, that people do this. Humans as a whole, we tend to draw these lines in the sand, especially when we have an agenda, especially when we have a dogma. But it does play out in our personal lives, too. And sometimes that's just the balance, you know, of, of being part of this whole thing. Is sometimes you do have to kind of go against your intuition just to keep the peace with the people who are important to you. Or sometimes there is a greater good where you maybe you do want to take a certain side, but you don't have to. And you should be very careful because sometimes when you when a line is drawn in the sand, there is a checklist of items that you have to agree with. And to disagree with one of those, no matter how minor it is, places you on the other side. You know, for example, you, you see this with in politics, social politics, where it's not enough to to agree with the basics of modern leftism. It's not enough, because if you say, well, you know, I think abortion should be legal, but I also, because I think we can't get rid of abortion, and I would rather it be safe, but it should be a last resort, and people should also take a lot more responsibility in their sexual behavior by understanding that this is the thing that creates new life. And I'm not saying not to enjoy it or not to, I'm not saying every time you do it to have to have a child in mind, you know, not at all. I mean, that's not realistic, you know, it's silly. But at the same time, if you say, okay, I'm, I'm, I believe abortion should be legal, 
But I believe if we're going to legalize abortion, we should also, you know, really reinforce the responsibility you have when you engage in this thing that potentially creates new life. And, you know, I don't, I don't really have a strict stance on it beyond that, although, you know, the same sort of person who would get mad at you, say there's like a, like a flower, just the, the bud of a flower is sticking up out of a sidewalk, and you just stomp it in front of somebody, you know, that, that person might be like, that's horrible. Why'd you do that? But that same person might think that, you know, abortion at any stage is fine. And, and I'm not, I'm not, arg- even by saying that, it sounds like I'm drawing a line in the sand or something, but I'm really not. I'm just saying, be aware, be responsible. You know, that's all. Uh, but, you know, even saying that, although I already prefaced that by saying I believe abortion should be legal, someone would take offense to that. Oh, how dare you tell me to be responsible with my body? And this goes for men and women. This has nothing to do with the whole controlling women thing. I mean, I think just anybody, men in particular, and I think it's it's a myth that people can't control uh, their sexual impulses. I mean, if that were true, you know, it's just, I mean, like, like how far do you want to go with that argument? You know, we all agree that somebody shouldn't sexually assault somebody. So therefore, we believe that you can control those impulses. And of course, there's a whole power dynamic involved in that. And I'm getting, I didn't expect to get into this controversial of territory. (laughs) I was just talking about if you're not for us, you're against us. But my point being is that you can agree with something on something that's one of these main political pivot points, like abortion. You can agree with somebody, but if you add like your own... If you if you give it some sort of three dimension three dimensional rendering just by saying hey yeah I, I support that but I think if I'm going to support that I also think that we need to teach some kind of responsibility and self restraint to go along with that it shouldn't be just some you know get rid of a baby whenever you want it sort of situation you know that's just how I feel about it and it's not rooted in any you know religious outlook it's just it's something that has crossed my mind over the years, and I, I'm not really sure entirely how I feel about it. So it's not it's not even that I'm coming from some strict place about it, but that's just kind of where my intuition leads me. But, you know, that would, somebody would take offense to that. Somebody would have a problem with that. Somebody would put, somebody would say that I'm anti-abortion because I have these other footnotes that go along with the fact that I am actually I believe abortion should be legal. I would rather women have a safe opportunity, you know, and and we can't possibly project, we can't possibly project our own understanding of what that means to get rid of this baby that you don't, you know, you know what I mean? Like, I can't understand what's going on in in a woman when she wants to do that, but I do think we should encourage responsible behavior and self restraint. I mean, I think those are two things that you can take with you for anything in any aspect of your life. But um, if you're not for us, you're against us. So clearly I'm against you. But right now, this intensified, if you're not for us, you're against us. I'm seeing people throw that around openly. And, and it's an idea that when it plays out in larger social groups, this if you're not for us, you're against us idea... I guess I've seen it mocked and parodied so much in pop culture, in even just basic 
you know, life philosophical discussions, I've seen that way of thinking parodied and mocked so often that I think I took for granted the fact that I think I took it for granted that it, it it's not more severe than it is. And now it is pretty severe. Now it is. And I'm seeing people say that who I think of as very people who think dynamically to some degree. They can think outside the box. And I'm seeing people say that. And I'm just like, man, like this is reptilian. You hear about the reptilian brain. This is positively reptilian. It's going to be my bumper sticker. Positively reptilian with an exclamation point. But that's how I feel about it. It's like people have reverted into this reptilian thinking. And it's not that the issues they care about aren't important, but the way that they are handling them and there's no strategy involved for one. And I'll get into that a little bit uh, in a minute here. But there's it's just it's poor strategy for one. It's poor understanding of human psychology on a personal level, an individual's own psychology. It's poor social psychology. And uh, and uh, it's just, you know, it it's alienating too. And and I'll 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 explain a little bit more about this, but just uh, on a base level, just seeing this, and why are we seeing so much of it now? It's not just that, because I mean, and the funny thing too is is to get to the situation, it's like an innocent black man was killed by police. And uh, I haven't seen, I know there are opinions out there. I know there are hardline white nationalists out there who are probably celebrating that or saying this guy deserved it. But all the public opinions I've seen from people even who are right-leaning, if not full-blown right-wing, have sincerely expressed some kind of acknowledgement that something went horribly wrong here. And it's different than some of the situations that came up in 2015 and 2016. Not all of them. You know, there are similar situations. There there is a trend. There are trends in police brutality, absolutely. But it's different from situations like, you know, St. Louis, where there was there was there was controversial evidence in St. Louis in whatever year that was, 2015, 2016. There's no contra... You know, we have video documentation, you know, of something. We have a witness who documented something on video. So to me, there's not... Unless the medical report comes out with something that says that this man died of something completely unrelated to having his, you know, air supply cut off by a knee to the neck, you know, unless for some, unless that comes out, in which case, oh, I I can't even imagine what'll happen. Um, But, you know, unless something like that comes out, you know, I I haven't seen anybody really try to argue otherwise about this particular situation. And no doubt there are trends in police brutality, especially among certain groups of people, for sure. And... uh, so so it's like I haven't seen anybody really disagree over that, but there is this disagreement over the response, over the strategy or lack of strategy, over over some of the the way that that trend is framed and discussed. You know, I the nuances. It's it's kind of like the nuances of the abortion topic, where you can have a stance that agrees with somebody, but if you have a if the nuances of the discussion don't follow the exact checklist that somebody is 
handed to you on a clipboard, then people start raising their eyebrows at you. And then if you don't say anything, they start raising their eyebrows even more. So it's kind of this, you know, it's a difficult situation to navigate. And and not difficult in the sense that it's like some horrible, I'm not, you know, it's not like you should be emotionally distraught about it, although many people are, but consider whether you should be emotionally distraught because of other people's response, and even if they direct some of their animosity at you because you're not doing exactly what they want, you should really consider how emotional your reaction should be to that. And I guess this episode is sort of my way of not giving an emotional reaction to that and kind of explaining that, uh, you know, that I, I know where these people are coming from. I guess that's what I should get to. That's kind of maybe how I should start this whole discussion is to say, I don't agree with the idea, but I sympathize with the feeling of desperation that leads someone to say, if you're not for us, you're against us. And just to use an example that I think everybody can understand, no matter what their opinion is, if you watch an old lady get attacked by someone who wants to steal her purse, that should compel you to intervene. That should compel you to want to step in in some way and intervene, even if just verbally. Somehow. Uh, So that's a situation, though, where the line in the sand is already drawn for you. The situation drew the line in the sand. And but it's also understandable for someone not to put their own life at risk by intervening in a potentially violent situation. Even though your gut is going to say, I need to help that old lady you know, there's a party that's like, if the guy has a gun or a knife or something, you know, there's a party that's like, I just my own self survival here. You know, I, I don't know if I want to get involved. And that's a difficult dilemma for many people. And some people just act on it. Some people will go right in. And but for the people who don't, when someone is just a bystander, whether it's to a specific incident like that, or whether it's to a larger social cause, whether it's somebody who's not participating in a march that you heavily support and think is crucial to our uh, basic societal, you know, it's basic to American justice, you know, to you. If we have any sense of justice at all, you think everybody should participate in a march with you. And when, when you do think someone is a bystander, whether it's to a direct crime or whether it is to a larger social issue, there's this tendency to project your anger about the situation or the people who are directly responsible. It's easier to project your anger to the people who you see, especially the people in your life or who are in your periphery, who you think aren't doing what they should be doing. They aren't doing what you think is the right thing. But you don't know their situation. And in the same way that, you know, somebody might just be a bystander to an old lady getting mugged. You know, you don't necessarily know their opinions or values, but especially their responsibilities, their priorities, the other factors that may influence what you see as non-decision. And there very well might be a decision in there. The person, the bystander might be a parent, who is thinking, you know, I want to help this old lady, but that guy has a gun or a knife or, or he's just physically more intimidating or, or even if he's not, you know, just something, something could go horribly wrong and 
that old lady and I could both end up on the ground and my kids aren't going to have a parent. But then the dilemma is too, as a parent, don't I want to step in and for my kids to know that I'm willing to stand up for what's right? That's a dilemma. That's a dilemma. And there's no easy answer to that. And to somebody who just sees that person though, from the outside, oh, look at that person standing there. Look at him just standing there where the old lady got mugged. You know, it's easy to project your anger onto that person because it's an easier target in many cases. And um, something that's lost in all of this, whether it's a specific incident like that, like an old lady getting mugged, or if it's a wider social issue, is that simply having an objective witness is extremely important both short and long term as long as they're willing to describe what they saw honestly describe what they saw. Whether the description is perfect doesn't really matter, but if that person, that bystander or witness, is willing to describe what they saw in court, to somebody, to the public, if they're willing to do something with that, you know, what you see as an indecision or a non-decision, you know, if they're willing to do something with that, that becomes an action. So you can see where relative inaction can become a form of action. You just, there's a longer route to get there. And having a witness in court is extremely, extremely important. Having witness testimony in court is very important, objective, somebody who didn't even get involved. Because if a witness got involved, if they tried to intervene, they're no longer a completely objective witness. And they also run the risk of getting killed or beaten themselves. And if they get killed, well, they're not going to be, there's not going to be a witness. So you can see where some, you know, these dilemmas, they don't necessarily all, you know, just because you don't get directly involved in the moment doesn't mean that a witness can't take action or get involved later. And, you know, the situation where, where you see an innocent minority get killed by police, it's difficult because anyone who directly intervened would be arrested and possibly hurt themselves. You know, if the police are doing something and you insert yourself into that, they're not going to go, oh, yeah, we're going to listen to this civilian. We're going to listen to this civilian who, who decided that what we were doing was wrong. That's not going to happen one way or another. It's either going to be your efforts are going to be in vain one way or another. And one of the positive aspects of our phone-heavy culture is that someone can at least document what happened and broadcast it immediately and independently of traditional media. I mean, not to say that YouTube and social media platforms aren't without their obvious issues as far as content, censorship, everything goes. They are corporations. They are mainstream in many respects. So it's not that they're not without problems. But the point being is the means of production are in the hands of anybody with a phone with a camera on it and internet access. You know, that's big. And and that means that the uh you know and, and not to say too, I want to say quick, that doesn't mean that you're not putting yourself at risk too. Filming somebody who is doing something wrong, they could easily come at you and people do. Cops do it. Civilians do it. Criminals do it. If they see somebody documenting them, I mean, even if you're just walking down the street with your camera on, uh, you know, someone, I, I, <laughs> my friends and I used to make prank videos, kind of like the old CKY videos. Um, this is before Jackass and all that came out. This was a few years, a couple years before when they were just the, 
the first CKY video we were really into, Land Speed, when that came out, because my friends were skateboarders. So we got really into that, and we were just like, let's, you know, and we liked doing, we were pranksters to begin with. So it was just like, why don't we put pranks on tape? Why don't we put pranks on tape? And so we, uh, we would just take a camera around town during the summer, whenever. And one time we were just, I don't even know if we were filming, but my friend had this video camera, you know, not a huge, not one of those ones from like the late 80s, early 90s that were like a rocket launcher, but, you know, a camcorder. It was very, you can't hide that. And we were filming it, and this dad and his daughter came up to us. I think it was outside of Blockbuster. And he... You know, if you listen to the episode where I talked about Death Metal Tom, I, I just told a random story where I was like, yeah, one time I was in Blockbuster and I looked out the window and Death Metal Tom walked by with a duffel bag when he was like 13, probably in the, just a few feet away from where I saw Death Metal Tom. We were filming and this dad came up to us with his daughter and he, he was like, he was very angry that we were videotaping. And he said, you know, I'm going to spit a loogie in the lens. And I think we caught him on tape saying that, but... He, he said, I'm going to spit a loogie on that lens. <laughs> a loogie on the lens. Something to that effect. So even in that situation where there's no crime happening, just a dad out with his daughter didn't want somebody just taping. And it's not like we were taping them deliberately, but he just didn't like that somebody was documenting reality around him. And now we're used to that. Now it's like there's people don't have... People, for one, aren't worried about government surveillance to the degree that they were even five years ago. But they're also much more comfortable with just people, you know, people taking pictures of each other. I mean, you go onto websites like Reddit and shit like that that are supposed to be these moral and ethical places filled with humanitarian leftists. And half of what's on there is like, I took a picture of this person in public wearing this. Oh, I videotaped someone doing this in public. And there's no consent. And people and and people like it becomes it makes its rounds on the internet and everybody sees somebody doing something. They catch somebody on a bad day. They catch somebody at Walmart wearing unattractive clothing and they take a photo of that person and literally show it to millions of people. So we've kind of given up not just on the idea of government surveillance, but we've given up on the idea of having any tact and you know, reservation. And and you know, of course my friends and I, when we were that age, we would take like cameras and video cameras and we would videotape it's not like I'm any better I'm just saying that this has become mainstream and I know it's messed up you know when my friends and I used to take pictures of guys with mullets or whatever and sometimes we would ask though sometimes we would like go up to a really tough guy and be like can we take a picture of you we were doing it before humans in New York, and we didn't try to give some uplifting story to go along with the photo it was just look at this guy He's sitting on a boat that's not going anywhere. He's got a mullet and a mustache, and he's got a tattoo back when tattoos actually meant something. And, you know, that was just our approach. Um, but, uh, and, you know, I, but I, I don't, tr I try not to do that anymore. Like, I try not to take a picture of strangers in public. The last time I remember doing it was about two or three years ago. A friend and I went to a, they had this like puppy parade downtown here where they, they just parade dogs around. And there was a guy there, an old man, bald, like ancient. I mean, he was well into his 80s, which I guess isn't ancient. But he was definitely on the senior side of senior citizen, 
getting a hunchback, kind of that old man gut, and with his brown pants belted, pulled all the way up over his belly button, like, you know, that super, uh, pulled his, you know, you know what I mean, where, like, the waist of your pants is, like, over your gut. He had that going on, but he was wearing a a button-up black Scarface shirt. And it it said Scarface on, like, the left breast, and then the back had Tony Montana, and it said Scarface. It might have been, like, the movie poster. And it was just so out of place. I mean, the guy looked, he looked gangster, because he had sunglasses on, and he was in his 80s. But he was wearing this Scarface shirt, and I said to my friend, I had her pose so that I could take his picture. But I didn't just go up and take his picture without his consent. You know, I, I had my friend pose. You got to use some trickery. It's nice to use some trickery sometimes. And so I had her pose next to, like, kind of near him, and it was like, oh, I'm taking a picture of you. And I actually took a couple pictures of this guy and posted them to my private Instagram account. It's not like I posted it publicly. But I also felt like this guy was me in 20 years. Yeah, I was like 32 or 33. This guy was 80. But I still felt like that was me in 20 years. Because I would be that guy with a Scarface shirt, sunglasses in his 80s by himself at the puppy parade. (laughs) You know, this guy, so I mean, I break these rules too, but I guess, you know, we do it now, but now it's just, it's mainstream. It's like the most popular sites that will post things like, we're committed to, to morals and ethics. They'll make statements like that. Meanwhile, all of their content is just based around humiliating and shaming people. And occasionally, like, something uplifting, like a, like a puppy or something. But it's just, it's kind of how things are now. Um, but the, the upside of that is that people have these cameras and they can actually, you know, give a... They can, they can highlight injustice when it happens and show it objectively. Because that's what happens when you have a phone. And that's what happened with this situation uh, recently, is that a phone documented this injustice and... Thank goodness, because that might not have, nothing might have been done without that video and possibly without protests, you know, you never know. And so in that way, but that person's putting themselves at risk too. Even though we've kind of accepted that people just have camera phones and they take pictures and video of things without consent, especially like doing it to a cop, they're putting themselves at risk. So it's not like they're out of harm's way, but uh, the point being to this whole this whole anecdote is just that a witness with a camera might be the best resource we have today when it comes to accurate courtroom testimony. And for all the criticisms of smartphone culture, the technology is crucial in cases that involve misconduct by police officers. So whenever you when you're thinking about phone shaming somebody, you know, consider the upsides of a person having that phone and, and having it at the ready, too. Because in some of these cases, that person who's staring at their phone might be the person who's ready to go when something bad happens, and they can just hit that button, and they're the first person filming. But these bystander dilemmas, you know, I mean, they play out in our personal lives, and they play out in larger social and political ways, but it's less direct. Because we're not the person who's witnessing the old lady being mugged. We're not necessarily the person witnessing a police officer kill a man. 
And that makes drawing an accurate line in the sand much more difficult. And you can see the infighting that goes on between people who basically agree with each other. You know, and and we saw this a few days ago, a week ago, where people who fundamentally agree with each other, not just basically, but fundamentally, they the fundamentals of their viewpoint are exactly the same, and they're lashing out at each other over online profile pictures and friend lists. And that reminds me of something else. I feel like I've derailed this enough, but um, I was on a walk last night, and I walked by this guy at a park on his phone, and I couldn't help but overhear. I wasn't even trying to eavesdrop. The guy, he was talking loudly, and I don't know. He, it sounded like he was a, a dad talking about maybe his son and somebody else's son, but he was talking about Facebook, and he was... He had no reservation, and this is how you know, like, we are in this now. People used to whisper about Facebook in public, especially a man, like a dad. You know, a a dad, if he's going to talk about Facebook in public, he's going to whisper about it at best. He might even use code words. On that uh, that thing, did you see what so-and-so said? You know, it's like... uh, but this guy, he was talking very openly, and he was saying how his son, and the names he used, I don't know, I, I hate to use names, but I guess I'm not really putting anybody out, n- nobody's getting put on the carpet here, but he was saying, like, he's like, I've noticed that Daniel, you know, he he doesn't, he never likes Ziggy, and he did use the name Ziggy, he said, I've noticed that Daniel, he never likes Ziggy's profile pictures anymore, and he used to, he used to like Daniel's profile pictures, and he's like, and I've noticed that, you know, you know, Ziggy never wishes Daniel a happy birthday anymore either. Well, well actually, he does, but he kind of does that with everybody, so it doesn't really mean much. And he's like, and he was going on about the observing the social media interactions between these two people. And I hope he was talking about kids. I don't know how young people are on there these days, but I hope that he was talking about his son and somebody else's son or something to that effect. I hope he wasn't just talking about people he knows randomly, like. Uh, but it was just, he was, it, it was, and I was like, you know, this isn't embarrassing. I had this thought where I was like, oh, this is embarrassing. And then I was like, you know what, this isn't because this is a part of our world now. This is just acceptance. This is just that synchronization between the digital and the real, the transcendent, uh, the, the transcending of our material forms. And so this dad is just, he's just with the times. This is what's going on. He, he's, in the same way that parents used to be like, oh, well, I've noticed that Daniel doesn't invite Ziggy over for uh, to play video games anymore. I've noticed that, you know, they don't really uh, play together at recess anymore. You know, in the same way that parents might have talked about like that at one point, now they can be like, oh, hey, I've noticed that my son doesn't like their son's social media profile pictures, and he used to. But anyway, so, but you can see where that even played out recently with this activism with this online activism where I I saw people who agree with each other lashing out at each other over you know blacked out profile pictures and who's on and I saw people too saying things like does anybody know this guy does anybody know this guy he posts stuff that I don't agree with and and you should take him off your friends list and bully him and I'm just like god you guys you don't want to do this you don't want to do this, you guys. That's how I feel. I'm just like, I, you know, I, I didn't feel emotionally distraught, but it was just this kind of like shaking of my head where I, I was just like, you don't want to be doing this. 
You don't want to be combing through each other's friend lists, looking for somebody you think is a Nazi. You don't want to be arguing over the proper way to like black out your profile picture. And it was, it's just like, oh, you're getting lost in the weeds, getting lost in the weeds. And if I truly didn't, if I truly like disagreed with these people, I would be excited. I would be like, oh, good, you're, you're infighting. But I don't like to see that. I don't like to see people who want meaningful social change fighting with each other in the weeds. And it's not that I explicitly agree with everything they're saying or everything they believe, but I don't disagree with them on such a fundamental level that I would want them to get lost in this infighting either. And I just see that, and I'm just like, oh, you guys... Um, you're not doing what you're what you think you're doing. Not that I'm an expert, because I think I do a lot of things that I don't. I think I think I'm not doing things that I think I'm doing too. But it's easier to see it from the outside. It's kind of like when you're you know dealing with a significant other or a friend who's just ranting and raving to you about what somebody else did to them, and then you you kind of see the other person's side, and you're just kind of like, oh, you're not talking about. You're, you're ignoring the central thing, and you're actually going to feel a lot better if you acknowledge that other thing. But it's hard to get that through to somebody without them personalizing it. But anyway, when you start drawing those lines in the sand over these... When it comes to these larger social and political dilemmas that don't necessarily create a, a solid line. You know, I, I mentioned how, like, when you see an old lady getting mugged, the line in the sand is just drawn right there. Nobody had to draw it. It is there. And I know a lot of people feel that way about the movement going on right now. They think it's a steady line. But if you notice that they are continually drawing and redrawing it themselves, while they might think that line is just there, you can actually see them drawing this invisible line. But it becomes a line drawn out of frustration, and it's a wobbly line. It's zigzaggy. It's ziggy, to reference that again. And you run the risk of stepping over it yourself when you're not looking. And they do it continually. And rawing, uh, rawing, drawing and redrawing these lines seems counterintuitive when the tide is, in, uh, is approaching. Because that's what's happening. You know, when a situation is heated and fast-paced, especially something like this that kind of came about so suddenly, not that the issues that people are talking about are new, but just that the, the immediacy of this conflict, and it is a conflict, just the immediacy of it, you know, the tide's approaching quickly. And so you're going to have to continually redraw that line further and further up the shore. And it's going to be a wobbly line. It's going to be, you know, you're going to, that's the problem is you see people step over their own line continually, but you don't want to be like, oh, you're a hypocrite or you're wrong because then you're playing the game and then they're going to redraw the line around you. And I think that's what you have to be careful of is when someone just has decided that you are a bad person or you're the enemy because it's no longer about drawing this wobbly line. Now they know exactly where to draw the line and they're going to continually redraw it at your toes. They're going to draw that line at your toes every time you make a step. Even if you try to join them, 
even if you try to take their side, if they've already decided that you are the other, they are going to keep drawing that line at your toes, and it's going to be counterintuitive to them, but they now have a target. So that's something to be careful of in this situation. And, uh, you know, another popular phrase that people use in addition to if you're not for us, you're against us, another one that I've seen recently is silence is betrayal. It's another popular phrase that's designed to get people to support you, but it's, you know, what that translates to is say what I want you to say or stay quiet, but if you stay quiet, I'm mad at you too. Silence is betrayal. Say what I want you to say or stay quiet, but if you stay quiet, I'm mad at you too. It reminds me of if you're not angry, you're not paying attention, which translates to if you're not angry, not only at the same thing I'm angry at, but if you're not angry in the exact same way that I'm angry, you're not only not paying attention, but you're my enemy. All these phrases are designed to do something similar, and I would describe them as Halloween store hexes. And they're completely useless. You know, they do recruit people onto your side, but they are weak links. And they are Halloween hexes that, you know, you think about spells and stuff, and there's there's this common kind of a trope that, you know, dumb people, you know, you look in like cartoons, if there's any kind of like hocus pocus or magic going on, spells always work on weak-minded people. Like if there's a dumb crony character, like if the main bad guy has a crony who's kind of a bumbling fool, and the good guy is like a spellcaster, there's a magician on the good guy team, you know, their spells always work a lot easier on like the doofus you know, the villain's henchman who's just like a big doofus. And that's true in real life, too. And when you use a Halloween store hex, like silence is betrayal, or if you're not for us, you're against us, you recruit doofuses. And it's not that I believe people are actually stupid, but they're people who have a weakness toward that sort of thing. And, you know, it, it's, it comes back to like a quantity over quality idea, where it's like, if you want quantity, yeah, you can recruit a bunch of weak-minded people that way. Because I don't think being weak-minded necessarily means being stupid or unintelligent. I think it just means you're susceptible. You're weak-minded. And it's a lot like guilting your children when they don't clean their room. And though it might be temporarily effective, it doesn't communicate the value of maintaining a clean and orderly environment. And that's hard to do especially to a kid who doesn't want to clean their room. I, don't, I only know what it's like to be that kid. I don't know what it's like to be the parent, but I think being that kid gives you a certain amount of insight because you know what's effective and what's not. And getting guilted over and over again, yeah, well, you might eventually do it, especially if there's going to be some kind of punishment, which is an important part of this discussion, which I'll get to in a sec. But yeah, if you think your mom's going to punish you for not cleaning your room, well... You're going to do it because of that and because of the guilt, because the guilt, the guilting she's doing is sort of like also a warning that you're going to be punished. But the most effective thing to do is somehow get that kid to have an epiphany that there is something desirable about having a clean living environment. And I think that can be done. I learned it somehow. I don't know how, but I had some sort of epiphany as a kid, and I guess I learned it somehow. Somehow my mom passed that on, or somehow something clicked. But going back to the punishment thing, that's implied in all of this. When someone says, if you're not with us, you're against us, 
or says you're on the wrong side of history or silences betrayal, there's an implied punishment, and the implication is we're going to get you. We're going to get you. Or if we're not going to get you, when all is said and done, everyone's going to know that you were one of the bad guys or that you somehow endorsed the bad guys. You know, it creates this very black and white simplified equation to something that is far more algebraic. Even if it is an issue that was prompted by something pretty black and white, literally, you know, like the, the death of this you know, innocent black man, something, even though that is a pretty clear-cut situation, you know, the larger issues that evolve and unravel, you know, literally unravel, no matter what your stance is, I mean, something has been unraveled. But it, it's kind of like with the abortion thing where there becomes this checklist where it's like you can say, oh, yeah, you know, people should protest this, and I support that. But if you say, you know, but then when someone says, oh, you know, maybe don't riot, or maybe don't do it in this way, that becomes, oh, wait, that's a that's a ch- part of the checklist for being on our side means that you have to go along with what everybody else does and says. You can't have any nuance. There, there's no room for nuance here is what it communicates. And if you do have a nuanced opinion, if you don't agree with us 100%, well, guess what? That means that you're on the other side. You've betrayed us. And you will be punished in some way. If through nothing else than just ostracization. There's, but there's an implied punishment when people draw these lines in the sand. There's always an implied punishment, whether it's direct or indirect. Because if there wasn't an implied punishment, it would just be hollow. You know, there would be nothing to it. And I think in a lot of cases that's true. People just throw these things out. They, they throw out these Halloween store hexes. And they don't actually plan on following through with anything because it's like I said, I relate to the desperation that someone is feeling, whether that desperation is, you know, justified or not is another question. But I understand the things that come out of your mouth when you're desperate. Uh, You know, I don't judge people for that, but that doesn't mean that I can't, you know, analyze it, I guess. You know, I can't it doesn't mean I can't think about it, talk about it on my show, my little show. Doesn't mean I can't talk about it on my little show. But, you know, demands for allegiance add weak links to your chain. And anyone who can be easily coerced is a weak link. They are that doofus henchman archetype. And when someone agrees with you, you often don't care if they're a doofus henchman. It's why people surround themselves with yes-men. But the truth is, is that when you demand allegiance, the sort of person who will give in immediately to that demand is a weak link, and they add a weak link to your chain. And those weak links will break when you most need them. That's something that I think is missing from these discussions of like quantity over quality, is that when you recruit weak links... When your Halloween store hexes bring weak links into your chain, those are the first links that are going to break. And that's going to hurt the strong links because the strong links might not be connected to each other anymore. 
they're separated by these weak links. So you're in trouble. You know, I understand this is a metaphor, but I do think that there this plays out in a very real way. But if people find or meet you on their own terms, guilt-free, they will be stronger and you will be stronger. And you don't want to alienate people who aren't operating at your speed or who you simply don't understand. That's a big part of this, too, is that you might not understand who someone is or what their role is. And not that everybody has to have some kind of role, but I think situations like this do make you take a look in the mirror and say, well, what is my role? Because I don't feel that I'm being indecisive. I don't feel that I'm just washing my hands of the situation. So what is my role? And you don't necessarily have to answer that for anybody else. I think that's the thing, too. It's not, you're not required to answer that question or volunteer that information. If you feel you have a role, even if it's simply being a bystander, being an objective witness, being the person who's there at the end, long-term, who can say, hey, I saw this whole thing play out, and I'm unbiased. I saw the police do this. I saw some of the protesters turn into rioters while other protesters remained peaceful. You know, being objective is important. And sometimes only the bystander can be objective. So even if that's your role, don't let someone shake your finger at you. And it's often the people who weren't directly involved in a situation that after the fact, when the dust has settled, those people become the bridges, the peacemakers. They are links that remain strong that can then link together the broken chain. You know what I mean? Sometimes by staying out of something and maintaining your own strength, you can be the person that brings two opposite ends of the chain together. So to think that everything revolves around getting involved right now and knowing exactly where you stand right now and being guilted into doing so... You know, I just don't think it works. You know, you got to find and meet people on their own terms, guilt-free. They will be stronger. You will be stronger. And, you you know, you just... At worst, you send people running to join the opposition, which some people subconsciously want. You know, any conflict attracts a few masochists. Whether someone wants to dish out the masochism or receive it, any kind of conflict... You can even just see this with like fights. If you watch like world, whatever it's called, like world star, whatever, the, I think that's right. If you watch those videos, you'll see where like two, two people will be fighting and like strangers run and get involved and get involved. You know, those people are just masochists one way or another on one end or the other, maybe both. So, you know, sometimes these things do attract masochists. They always do, I feel like. And some people, they subconsciously want to, to draw that line in the sand so that they have an enemy, so that they know where to swing, even though it was rather arbitrary. So I think it's always good to be aware of those kinds of people. The people who want you to, they want to provoke you. They want to bait you. Because that goes on. There's a lot of baiting going on, and that's kind of what those statements are, the, the statements of silence is betrayal, if you're not with us, you're against us. It's bait. And there's a part of those people, the sort of person who's feeling that level of frustration and desperation, 
in that moment, I don't think they actually care if you join them or not. And we can see where some of these movements where even if you do agree, that's often not good enough because maybe a part of you, maybe you don't agree with every single thing they say. And that open box on the checklist that you, that you didn't check off, that can become a reason to lash out at you even if you're standing on the same side of the line. And somebody who's truly passionate about a certain cause, it's kind of like when I talk about conspiracy theorists, and I'm like, why don't you just focus on one at a time? Even if they're all related, even if they're all connected, focus on just get your evidence together one at a time. But there's masochism to conspiracy theory as well, where a lot of conspiracy theorists don't want to be proven right. They're like gamblers. You know, in Sammy Gravano's book, Underboss, he talks about John Gotti and degenerate gamblers. And John Gotti was a degenerate gambler. And Sammy says, he's like, I don't think John ever actually wanted to win. He's like, I don't think, basically, degenerate gamblers don't even really want to win. Because he was saying, when John Gotti would lose like $200,000, you know, on a bet he made, he would come into the club and brag about it. He'd be like, you wouldn't believe how much, this is how John Gotti sounded, you wouldn't believe how much money I lost yesterday. And he said John Gotti would brag about all the money he would lost, but if he won, it was just kind of like, oh, yeah, I won big at the track yesterday, and that was it. But if he lost, it was this big show. And so there's this weird, there's kind of a masochism to any addiction, but to degenerate gambling, you know, according to Sammy Gravano, I feel like it, I trust him. I trust, I trust a, a, a former high-level mafioso on the, what a degenerate gambler is like. But there's this masochism that goes along with a lot of this stuff where I think in some cases it's like they don't even – when someone draws a line in the sand, they don't even want you to join them. And I think a part of them is a little disappointed when you do. And some people are mature and forward-thinking enough just to be like anybody we have right now is good. But there are some people who they just want to keep splitting hairs. They're angry. They're upset. And when someone is angry and upset, they'll fight with just about anybody, especially the people who are closest to them. Hence, people fighting over profile pictures, fighting over their friends. Oh, you're not giving the right, you're not expressing yourself the right way on social media, which we're seeing a lot of right now. So you can see where people, they, they often just kind of want to take their frustration out on just who's closest to them. It's a proximity thing. But, uh, you know, as far as the bait goes, you know, I, I was invited to a protest a few days ago. It was a peaceful one. A friend invited me. And I said, hey, you know, I support what you're doing, but my situation keeps me closer to home. And I had to be very careful about what I said. You know, I didn't want to mention anything about roles. I didn't want to be grandiose. And my support, too, when I said, like, I support what you're doing, what I really mean is I support that you are standing up for what you believe in, and you're my friend, and I know that you're smart, and I think you're cool. And so my support is specifically for you, above all, above all else. I want, I want my friends, whether I agree, disagree, mostly agree, mostly disagree, or that huge gray area in between, I want them to know that I support them standing up for what they feel is right. 
Did I feel a little bit baited? Sure. You know, I, I because I'm someone who hasn't said the slogans, hasn't done what other people do online right now, because I haven't done all those things, because I haven't declared my allegiance on Facebook, I think there was an element of bait. And if she happens to hear this, no, I don't, I don't feel that you were doing anything like nefarious. But I did feel that I was being baited a little bit or tested. And like, like I, this person, I don't think there would be anything sinister about it. I don't think this was a silence is betrayal. I don't think this was a, if you're not with us, you're against us. But I did know that I had to respond very tactfully. Because, you know, and, and, and truthfully as well, tactfully and truthfully, because I don't want anybody to get the wrong impression. And it's a situation where we do have to choose our words very carefully. But, you know, it's a time where people are baiting each other one way or another. And what I will say to that, what I will say to bait is save the bait for fishing. Put the love potions away until you run out of Tinder options. You know, we know how love potions play out in, like, Archie comics. Every every cartoon, every story that's ever had a love potion. Whenever you try to cast that love spell on somebody, the opposite ends up happening. I mean, it's even happened to me in a way. Not that I've cast a love spell or given someone a love potion. Uh, which in today's context sounds like drugging somebody or something. Which I guess it is. Love potions are drugging somebody. Um, but, you know, it, the sto- the way that story always plays out is that the person that you drugged, the person that you gave that love potion to, ends up being obsessed with you. And you're like, oh my god, I didn't... This isn't what I wanted. This isn't what I wanted. It's always... It's the opposite of what you wanted whenever you try to use a love potion on somebody. And the same goes for using any kind of magic. You know, the same, anytime you cast a spell, whether you take that literally or not, anytime you cast a spell of any kind, you very well might get an extreme version of the outcome you wanted that is actually no longer desirable. Like that girl you had a crush on, you just wanted her to go out on a date with you, so you cast a spell on her. Now she's stalking you. Now she's reading through your mail. Now she's checking your emails. Uh, But, uh, you know, that's the thing. So, I mean, leave the hexes in the mass-produced grimoire that you bought on Amazon. Don't use them right now. And don't focus your attention on the one person in the audience who isn't headbanging as hard as everyone else. That's, That's sort of what people are doing right now, too. They're trying to headbang harder than the person next to them. Meanwhile, they're also trying to keep an eye on to see who's not headbanging hard enough or not headbanging at all. But, uh, you know, it's something I have to say, too, in a general sense, and I think this is the real danger of drawing lines in the sand, is that the deaths of innocent lives often come from people who commit themselves to drawing lines in the sand. And you can always find the justification for drawing that line. But if you ask the if you if you were to ask the person who takes the life of an innocent minority, they have some kind of explanation and rarely an honest description of the event, even if it was an accident. 
even if it was purely an accident, they're going to feel compelled to give some kind of explanation, and it's probably not going to be an honest description. And you know how much I value honest descriptions over explanations, so that should tell you something about my, my feeling on that. Uh, but the truth is, is that somebody can always come up with a justification or an explanation, and often, what is that? What is an explanation or a justification? You think about Microsoft Word. What does it mean when you justify a paragraph? You make it, 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 turn, it makes it so it's all lined up. In Microsoft Word, you know, you're typing, oh, your paragraph, it's kind of like the right side of the paragraph. It's all, it's all weird and uneven. And so you justify it so that everything, it's perfect line. It's lined up perfectly on each side. And that's sort of what goes on when you have a justification for something. Sometimes things line up naturally, like the old lady getting mugged. That's just, that's, that line is just drawn. There's no justification needed for taking action. Whether you take action or don't take action, there's no, you don't need to come up with a justification to explain why you helped an old lady. But when something doesn't have quite as direct of a justification, you're going to force that line yourself. And that's very dangerous. It's very dangerous when you start justifying things yourself, especially given how many situations in life do just have a natural justification. And it takes away from those situations. But when you start coming up with your own justifications and drawing the line yourself, aligning things yourself along that line, I feel that it becomes very physically and mentally dangerous. And when you look at these situations where someone does commit a horrible crime against an innocent person, either they drew a line or they stood beside someone else who demanded their allegiance. And again, people who take innocent lives are often the weak links. And weak links are attracted by lines in the sand. They're attracted by demands of allegiance. And not that they're attracted in the sense that they find it beautiful, but it actually literally attracts them because they're scared of the punishment if they don't go in that direction. And so when you bring weak links over to your side, the weak links are the people that might do something horrible in your name. So that's why you should be careful about drawing lines in the sand. It might not be what you do with it. It might not be the punishment that you try to carry out but it might very well be the weak links that you include in your chain. Because when they break, it might not even be from outside influence. When a, when a weak link in a chain breaks, it might just be them breaking on their own. They're, they're weak to begin with. The slightest provocation might cause them to do something horrible. Important to know. Important to understand if you're going to demand allegiance. And let's look at Facebook. Let's look at social media and Facebook. I want to write, a, I think I should write a poem like this. And I think it should go Facebook, where I once liked girls' profile pictures to subtly let them know I like them without fear of direct rejection. Facebook, where I posted YouTube videos to songs so that other people would listen, knowing nobody gave a shit. Facebook, 
where I took a blood oath in the pending civil war of 2020. Facebook, where a melody beautiful enough for thee has yet to be written. My church, Facebook. That's my poem. Where I flirted with girls in college. And ten years later where I took my blood oath in the great civil unrest. But you can see where this demand for allegiance and this if you're not with us, you're against us. You can see where this directly comes on the coattails of COVID, as if that's over. But you can see where it follows that, and that line of thinking was very big. I mean, it's big in our culture in general, but it was very big in COVID, where it was, if you don't stay home, you're going to kill innocent people. And that made sense. Because what we were dealing with was a virus, and, and, you know, some people have conspiracy theories, some people question it, and whatever. I don't have anything to say about that. But most people bought into the idea, and it, in many ways it brought us together. Even though there were people who protested quarantine, and that drew lines in the sand that were already there. But, you know, even though that played out, huge groups of people who might otherwise disagree were all doing the same thing for each other. And so during COVID, we got very comfortable with this, dare I say, positive version of it. If you're not with us, you're against us. If you don't stay home, you're against us. You're against everybody. You're against everybody's well-being outside of politics. You know, because people were worried about their grandparents who probably voted for Donald Trump or something. But they people decided, you know what, even though Uncle Bob you know, voted for Trump, and I I can't stand his face at the Thanksgiving table, I don't want him to die alone, out of breath in a hospital. So I'm going to stay home for him, and for other people's Uncle Bob. And so we got into this idea of, if you're not for us, you're against us, because everybody was potentially affected. But then this happened. And you can see where the people who were... Some of the people who are the most adamant about staying home, and what's interesting is seeing the people, like, I'm thinking of one particular person who I won't call out, but they, online, they were very vehement against the reopening. And things aren't reopened yet, you know, but, you know, the Washington State had decided to go into, I think it's called phase two, I don't don't even know. These words are meaningless to me. Um, But, uh... You know, we decided to go into phase two, and somebody I know was very vehement against it, and online was talking about all the people they saw who were too close. And I'm not making this up. This person was very just angry and upset about all all these. I saw all these people out at the park. They were too close. I drove by. Oh, I went to the store, and people only half the people were wearing masks. And then this same person jumped on the protest thing and is like, People need to do this, you know, and I, and I agree there's been this, and I don't agree, I acknowledge that there, that people have done the math maybe on that, and they think that the issue they're protesting is a far greater threat to our civilization than an invisible disease, but it's it's still weird to me that somebody who was mad at people protesting a month ago for... People were protesting the severity of the 
the virus and wanted things to be reopened. And now the people who were the most vehemently opposed to those people have their own cause that they want to, you know, publicly congregate to, you know, support. And it's not that I, it's not even that I, I'm talking about the actual stuff. It's, I'm not even talking about the values here. I'm just talking about how quickly people sway in the wind. You know, how emotionally rooted these reactions are. And of course they're emotional. I mean, when I say something is emotional, I take emotion very seriously. It's how we operate a lot of the time. It's what, it's what we run off of so much. And you should have control over it. But that said, I don't dismiss emotion. I don't like this idea of totally denying emotion or saying that facts, not emotions, facts, not feelings. How about both? How about facts and feelings? But still, you can see where somebody who's totally rooted in their emotions, they're just going to sway in the wind. It's like an attack dog, and whatever you point them at, that's what they're going to go toward. Nothing against attack dogs. But, you know, I, I just see this where, you know, Facebook, where you took your blood oath, where where your friends demanded your allegiance, and where, you know, you, uh, you jabbed your pinky finger with a with a pin before you typed on the keyboard so that the blood would seep into your keyboard and your blood oath is complete. Now people know where you stand. Facebook, where you once needed a college email address to even get an account. Facebook, where you must broadcast your blood oath. But, you know, the, let's talk about that for a second, just friendship. You know, what Facebook is supposed to be about is being connected to people. They're called your friends because the idea is that if you want to be permanently connected with somebody on this collective consciousness platform, the idea is that maybe you're friends. People are always saying, like, oh, they're not really your friends. Just because you got a thousand people on your friends list doesn't mean that you're friends. You know, people would always say that line, and it's like, why not? Why can't they be your friends? You've decided to, you've agreed, because I mean, you've turned, you've turned down friend requests before, I'm sure, whoever you are out there. If you don't have a Facebook account, then you've really turned down some friend requests. You've turned down the big friend request of having a Facebook account. But if you're out there, you know, you've probably turned down some friend requests or unfriended some people. And if there's no meaning behind the word Facebook friend, the friend part of that, then you wouldn't have any need to, like, control your list at all. But because you have a desire to control that list, that means that you want to be connected to certain people in some way. So why not call them friends? Why not? You don't have to call them your best friends, but just call them your friends. They're people who you're willing to share in the collective consciousness with. You, at the very least, don't consider them poison. You could rename your friend list. Call It's like the old AOL days where you could rename your uh, buddy list to whatever you wanted. Rename it not poison. These people are not poison. These people are not in the band poison. Not Brett Michaels. Brett Michaels is on my friend list. He's He might not be my friend on Facebook, but if I met Brett Michaels, I would consider him a friend. After I demanded his allegiance. After I had him take a blood oath to ensure that he is... For us and not against us. 
Brett Michaels. Um, but, uh, you know, let's get into the idea of just friends in general. It doesn't have to be this social media idea, which my point being just that, you know, just because it's through this weird, immaterial, non-bodily connection, they're your friends, that you're connected to them in some way. But just whether it's in person or whether it's not, you know, I have friends I don't agree with, sometimes on fundamental levels that translate to both extremes of the political spectrum. However those are defined these days, I don't even know. I, don't, I, I wouldn't even be able to tell you how the political spectrum is defined right now, but I know that the good of the friendships I have, the, the good of those friendships has more potential to spill out somewhere, really anywhere, by maintaining the common ground that brought us together. That's me, though, and I don't expect the same from anyone, even if they expect something else from me. And I try not to walk away from people, but I also don't take offense if they walk away from me. Which seems to be, you know, the kind of the M.O. right now. I see people celebrating. I've seen this explicitly stated. People celebrating the fact that they got to walk away from somebody who disagreed with them. And I wonder, did they really disagree with you or did they just expect, did they just express some nuance and if you were to tell me all about it, if you were my significant other, and right now, to be honest, like I've been hearing from friends who are in good relationships, so there's that, but I've been hearing from friends who are in you know, relationships that aren't going so well, and some of it involves this, and even if it doesn't involve it directly, when you're in a time of chaos like this, it's going to be hard. I mean, having a, a romantic relationship during a time of total order is difficult enough. I mean, I know. I only ever dated during times of general order. I don't think I've ever dated anybody during times of chaos, and I'm actually appreciative of that. You know, I'm glad that I'm not dating anybody right now. Because that's another thing, is there's this demand for political allegiance. Like, you know, I, I mean, I tend to date girls who are much more liberal than I am because I'm not like opposed to their views. You know, I'm not, and I agree with them on a lot of fundamental things, but I've run into that issue with dating girls who are especially socio-political. And it's, it especially sucks when that's not apparent to begin with, when you're kind of, you kind of know where someone stands, you kind of know what their basic values are. And then a situation comes up in the world that's very heated and suddenly something gets activated and it's like, they are very upset. And it's not that I don't want them to be upset, but it's just that we fall into a state of disharmony. Even if we don't fundamentally disagree, the nuances really split you apart. And so in that way, you know, I'm on my own path in life. And I think it would be really difficult to have a girlfriend right now. <laughs> That's what all this comes down to. I think it would be really hard. Like, and from, I've been hearing from some friends who are trying to, like, start new relationships or maintain old ones, things like that. And I'm just like, man, I am so glad that out of all my headaches which I enjoy, actually. Whatever headaches I have right now, they're fun. But that doesn't sound like a fun headache. So I, I feel fortunate that I don't have to contend with that right now. I'm just trying to keep Batty from barking too much. But I'm glad that I'm not having to negotiate the just the nuances of, a, of the relationship itself with somebody 
let alone the nuances of much larger events with their encroaching tides and wobbly, zigzaggy lines and blood oaths on Facebook, demands for allegiance on Instagram. You know, I'm glad that I don't have to negotiate a romantic relationship. And people who are able to do that, you know, beautiful. You should have kids. If you can have that much harmony in all this, if you don't already have kids, have them. That's a great goal. Start a family. You're the sort of people who should start a family, no matter what you believe. If you can find harmony in romance right now, start planning that baby shower. I mean it. But I guess to close this out, you know, we've now been running for an hour 16. To close this here Tuesday night school episode out, which, depending on who listens, maybe maybe I'm drawing lines in the sand. Maybe this whole episode was me drawing a line in the sand. I don't know. I don't think it was. Maybe there's stuff in this episode that someone will take offense to. Seems to be easy to do. Seems easy to take offense. But I think I'll close this out with a quote that I've used recently, but it's always relevant. And I don't know who the source is, but whoever said it knew people very well. Anyone convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children